welcome to the Modern Carnivore Podcast, a guide for those interested in hearing more about hunting, fishing, and other paths to eating more responsibly. Now, here's your host, Mark Norquist. Howdy, and welcome to this new episode of the Modern Carnivore Podcast. Today, I am joined by a gentleman by the name of Clint Emerson. Uh, Clint is a, a former Navy SEAL who's, who's retired, and he recently wrote a book called The Rugged Life, and it's, it's called The Modern Guide to Self-Reliance. And in this book, Clint talks about uh, really, you know, how to, how to be more, more self-sufficient and to, as he says, be your own provider, be your own homesteader, be your own builder, your own farmer, your own protector, etc. And there's a lot of reasons that people come to the outdoors and the activities that we like to talk about, hunting, fishing, and foraging. And one of them is, is definitely self-reliance. A lot of people, I think, are looking for opportunities to, to be more independent. We, you know, we've created such uh, a dependent society uh, on technology and a lot of infrastructure that continues to get more and more brittle. And Clinton and I talk about that in this conversation about his book, about his background as a Navy SEAL. Uh, and I think you'll find it interesting. And uh, please do check out his book, again, The Rugged Life. You can get it anywhere that uh, you buy books today. And I hope you enjoy this conversation with Clint Emerson. Clint, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. Good hanging out Abs- with you. Absolutely, man. So um, this is the first time you and I have, have spoken. And uh, so maybe if you could if you could just give a little background for the audience. Um, you know, where, where did you, I think I did see a, a, a reference somewhere that you had, you had a, a different uh, upbringing than, than most people. I think you grew up in a different place, right? Right. I, uh, you know, I'm a Dallas kid, but it's when I was in eighth, you know, well, heck I was eight years old. And in the second grade, we, uh, my dad picked up a job with Aramco, which is A-R-A-M-C-O, Arabian American company, which is, you know, to date, one of the largest oil company in the world. Um, and so we moved to Saudi Arabia and I hung out there from the second grade to high school, came back to the States for high school and college, joined the Navy, uh, did a split tour between the uh, West Coast. So 10 years on the West Coast, SEAL Team 3. Uh, in the middle of my career, I went to the NSA in D.C. and then finished my career at uh Naval Special Warfare Development Group, which is in Virginia Beach. So that was 20 years solid, just operational stuff. And uh, yeah, and now I'm, I got out and, you know, doing what everybody else is doing, trying to figure out what I'm going to do each day. <laughs> <laughs> and make it through, figure out what we do when we grow up, right? Exactly. <laughs> so what drew you to uh, to the military, like to, to join Navy? You know, that's kind of a multi-pronged deal. I, you know, I, growing up in Saudi, I was kind of like a, a professional troublemaker over there. So I enjoyed, you know, the risk at an early age. I was also in Boy Scouts. I tell people all the time, I may be an Eagle Scout, but I'm no Boy Scout, you know. Uh, but learning all those skills that you learn earning merit badges, I uh, I loved. And I felt like um, I felt like that was definitely like my niche. That was my passion. Um, and I like that 
it was early on earning those step-by-step, you know, if you really look at how the scouting takes you from zero, you know, all the way up to an experienced, well-rounded, you know, boy, um, it's a pretty decent system, even though it's gone south in the last couple of years. And that's unfortunate. But so then I probably around 10 or 11 years old, I'm, I'm traveling through an airport in Germany. And um, we're coming back to the States to renew our visas because Saudis are weird, you know, like, hey, you can't stay here for a full year at a time. So what we're going to do is we're going to give you $5,000 per head in your family and send you on a month long vacation. Right. And so we stopped through Germany. We're at our gate. I walk up to the bar that's right there to get a Coke. And sure enough, there's this guy with like a black polo on with cool tattoos. And I'm asking, you know, my typical questions of like, what's that? You know, and I'm pointing at a tattoo on his arm and he's like, it's a trident. And I'm like, what's a trident? He's like, it's a symbol. It represents uh, a community, a brotherhood, blah, 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 blah. It gives me all kind of this roundabout answer that wasn't really an answer, you know? And um, anyway, he finally says, where are you from? And I said, well, I'm in Saudi. And he's like, oh, okay. Well, do you remember when we bombed Libya? And I'm like, yeah, actually I do. I was the color guard for Vice President George Bush and blah, 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 blah. And I kind of filled his head. And then, uh, you know, at the time, Vice President George Bush came and actually gave us warning. Like, hey, you know, retaliation is definitely going to be on these American compounds inside Saudi. So we're going to have C-130s ready to get you Americans out of here just in case, you know, and that was kind of the point to his visit at the time. And so this guy was like, yeah, so, you know, the B-111s had to roll in super low and drop bombs to prevent collateral damage. And he said, me and my buddies went in the night before and we took out, we killed the guys and then we blew up the anti-aircraft guns so that the B-111s wouldn't have any issues. Right. And, uh, at that point, I was sold. I was like, oh, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be a SEAL when I grow <laughs> up, you know. And uh, that's kind of a long answer. But, yeah, if it, you know, causing trouble, Boy Scouts and meeting that guy in an airport. And the best part, actually, is now you fast forward. I show up to SEAL Team 3, which concentrated on the Middle East. I go to some of the old timers who'd been there since, you know, Libya. And I'm like, hey, did we uh, did we go in and hit these, kill these guys and take out any aircraft guns? And they're like, nope didn't happen. And then I'm like, Oh, that must've been, that must've been those special guys out on the East coast. So once I end up at the, with the special guys on the East coast, I go around and ask those guys like, Hey, did we ever go in and like take out any aircraft guns before the B-111s rolled in? Nope. So the odds are my whole passion was driven by some fraud sitting at a bar in Germany. <laughs> That's about it. Well, it seems like it turned out pretty well regardless, huh? Yeah. It fueled the passion. That's that's great. Yeah. So, you know, what we the reason that we, that we got on the on the call today is 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 to talk about your your new book, um, The Rugged Life. And I would presume that um that all of your background growing up in Saudi Arabia, being a Boy Scout, uh, becoming a Navy SEAL, etc., all of that contributes to what you're calling the rugged life. But I guess maybe I'd ask you ask you this: is you know what is what is the rugged life in your in your mind, and why would somebody be drawn to that? 
Yeah, I think the rugged life is a lot of things. It is the skills that your dad forgot to teach you. It's the skills that most dads don't even know to teach their kids these days. It's also a backup plan. It's contingencies, right? It's it's a book of options. Um, I'm not saying that everyone needs to go buy a cab in the middle of nowhere and, you know, and think that living the romantic dream of chopping wood and sitting by your wood burning stove each day is somehow like easy. It's hard. It's rugged. Right. And so those skills that every American male, female and child just just 100 years ago knew most people don't know now. And in light of a pandemic, you know, economic downturn, supply chain issues, you know, I figured, well, why not put a book together that gives everybody options, backup plans, and teaches them the skills their dad didn't teach so that they don't have to rely exclusively on the grocery store down the road, Amazon, or, you know, any of the other um, complacency-driven apps that we all use these days. But I'm also not saying give up technology, right? I think it's important to leverage the technology in order to be more self-reliant. And more self-reliant that you are, then the less all that crazy shit can affect you. Like how you said that complacently driven apps, uh, I couldn't I couldn't agree more. There is a lot these days, I think, in modern society, in the modern world that that uh, tends to promote uh, complacency and, and the easy life versus the rugged life. So what do you what do you think is the biggest challenge for someone in society today to 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 say, OK, I'm I'm tired of of my cushy lifestyle. I want to, to be more rugged in my, in my life. Um, what do you, what do you think the biggest obstacles are for somebody in, who, who says that or, or, or is thinking about it? You know, probably the first step, right? You know, they, it's, it's taking the first step and picking one category of interest that you want to start doing yourself and you don't want someone to start to continue doing it for you. Um, you know, I think I think that's the mainly because whatever lifestyle they're already living, the calendar, their routine and time is already taken up. So you have to consciously go, OK, I'm going to make time for this in my life because most of the things that are rugged take time, you know, because you're having to do it yourself. And and if it's your first time, you're going to fail. You know, you're going to fail a couple of times. um, But in the failure, you're going to learn so much. You're going to get so much satisfaction and gratification uh, because in the end, all each time you fail, obviously, is going to make you better. And then once you actually get it, then you're going to be like, man, I'm so glad I did this, you know. And I think that's the key is just taking the first step, making that decision to make time for it and then doing it. You know, by all means, I do not expect anyone to just, like I said, go out in the middle of nowhere and start living it. I think that's a little too overwhelming for any human that are kind of used to the conveniences of life. Is um, what? How would you differentiate the theme of what you're talking about with the rugged life from you know, prepping lifestyle from survival is, et cetera. Is, is there a difference or would you say it's, it's, it's pretty similar? Oh, completely different. A prepper, 
buys a bunch of shit and shoves it in a closet and waits for the zombies to show up. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> um, you know, a survivalist usually focuses on the primitive way of doing things, which I agree. You should at least know like, okay, how to start a fire if I don't have a Bic lighter, you know, things like that. Um, but the rugged life is you're putting together systems of longevity, right? So that's why each chapter is, be your own hunter, be your own farmer, be your own butcher, be your own homemaker, be your own, be your own, be your own. And each chapter is a system that then gives you what you need on a regular basis. Let's face it, if a prepper runs out of MREs and, you know, we're talking about the apocalyptic kind of scenario, well, once he's out of MREs, does he know how? It's a little too late to be starting to figure out how to grow a garden or go hunting or go fishing, you know? Um, so the rugged life is all about putting together systems of longevity that sustain anything that, you know, we all label life support. So, you know, your food, your water, your medicine, all that kind of stuff. How much of um, how much of this rugged lifestyle do you practice yourself? You know, there's aspects of it that I practice because of my upbringing. My dad certainly had, was an engineering mindset. He's one of those guys that could take a 455 rock rocket, you know, engine out of an Oldsmobile, take it apart, put it back together and never look at a manual. Right. And I was his gopher. Like, go get me, you know, whatever, you know, whatever tool, whatever this, whatever that. And that was for everything, whether it was putting in a sound system in my buddy's cars or, you know, running wires across the attic, you know, when it's 130 degrees up there in a Dallas summer. So, you know, so there's been aspects that have been seeded through my life, mainly because of my dad or because of the military. Right. When you talk about be your own communicator, the military, we have to be familiar with radios of all spectrums. And I'm talking everything from HF, UHF, VHF, understanding how sound propagates and radio frequencies, you know, so, but when you get into more of the hunting and stuff that goes back to childhood, you know, my dad was a hunter, so we enjoyed doing that from time to time. Um, but when you get into the farming and you get into anything that has to do with raising protein, that's new. That's where I rely on the best part of any book I do, and that's research, right? I go around, I travel the country, and I find the people who do it for a living. They live it and they breathe it, and I get their tricks of the trade and pro tips. And, and, uh, and obviously, you combine it all together, and you've got the book. So, yeah, yeah, I saw, you know, like, and actually, was it maybe even in, in the butchering section, you talk about how, how to build a ch chicken coop and, yeah. and things like that, right? <laughs> Yeah. And you know what was cool is I had no idea. I mean, if you really, if you build a mobile hoop coop, which is the easiest one, and I felt like the most beneficial that you can build, it allows your chickens to be free, free range, but also keeps them protected from predators. And then you can move it because it's on wheels, you know, around different parts of your land. Chicken poop is the best fertilizer in the world. And you can move it every couple of weeks or every couple of months, depending on where you live or the season. And one, you're raising great chickens, which give you great eggs. If you're raising meat chickens, well, then you're going to have awesome meat because they're, they're eating the things they need to eat, the insects and the grass and everything else that comes with it. Um, but you're also, you know, totally, you know, adding all this nourishment to your soil. Um, and it's like this one-stop shop that you just move around every couple of weeks. It's awesome. And I was like, whoa, that's totally cool. And I had no idea until I showed up to 
Melissa Norris's house. You know, she's a big YouTuber and man, she had every system going and, uh, and can give you encyclopedias of information off the top of her head on how to do all of it. And it was, it was really a really cool experience. Like a mini regenerative agriculture type of uh, practice. That's, that's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. So, you know, if, if you think about, again, modern society, what are the, you know, and what you're advocating for, um, what do you think are the implications of, of these, of, of a softer lifestyle that, that we're all living these days? Again, the, the complacency driven apps. And I agree with you, you know, I think technology, technology is a wonderful thing. Uh, but you, I think, always have to put it in the context of of how does this fit into my lifestyle, and where's the value, and what are the risks associated with it? And I think, I think, complacency is is a real risk. It is, and if you, I like to kind of sometimes, you know, go macro, and you just look at national security alone. Imagine if every American was a hundred percent self reliant, how that would just exponentially increase national security. You know what I mean? Like, absolutely. We're not having, if, if, if every American did that, I mean, you're not relying on importing, you know, and you're fending for yourself. And if you, you go one step further and, and you go back in time, it's a community thing. You know, let's say you do live in suburbia America, you know, let's say I'm going to go ahead and be the chicken guy for the, for my cul-de-sac. My neighbor is going to be the tomato, jalapeno, and avocado guy, right? And the and the family across the street is going to do all the fruits or whatever, you know. So you can break it up, and you don't have to do all of it. But I feel like people just took on more of a self reliant uh, mindset. Then you're increasing the security of yourself, your neighborhoods, and everywhere that you, wherever you live. Uh, and then on top of that, you're isolating and insulating yourself from all the outside chaos. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think, you know, it, it, systems are getting so brittle these days and it goes beyond just, you know, anything about energy, communication, financial systems, et cetera. And uh, I, I couldn't agree with you more that, uh, that, that if they were more decentralized, uh, it would be a, a safer place. Yeah. Um. So in the, in the hunting section, like, tell me a little bit about your hunting background. You said you hunted a bit with your dad as a kid. Do you hunt now? I, I did see, uh, saw on your Instagram profile there a couple of days ago, you're shooting a longbow. It looked like. It was, man, that was a great course. And, uh, and I had told myself like, you know how it is, you start working and you don't make time to learn. So I yeah. consciously go, all right, go be a student, go be a student. So you know, on the modern side, I'm I'm also, you know, taking my sport bike to tracks and learning from pros on how to drag my knee around turns at, at the highest possible speeds ever. But and then on the other side of that, I'm, you know, trying to support other folks that are out there um, by attending their courses. And the last one was, you know, Corey Hawk with that longbow. Um, but hunting background was limited. You know, it was off and on when I was a kid. Um, there was quail, turkey, deer, you know, and, um, and that was with my dad and kind of just following his footsteps. Uh, as an adult, I, uh, I, I basically trailed some of my buddies that had the bear experience 
and we went out on a multi-day um uh it was like washington the washington state area and it was my buddy had a uh a route that took uh two or three days to get there and then we got there and there was nothing so it was two or three days back. <laughs> <laughs> now, is that, I'm presuming out in Washington, is this more of a spot and stock rather than a standing? Uh, yeah. Hunt, right? Yeah. Right. Spot and stock. And he had it, it every year up to that point. I remember telling him like two years prior, like, next time you go, I want to go. And then, of course, when we go, nothing. I was like, this is stupid. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's hunting. Yeah, that's right. You're not always going to get what you want. I saw you had fishing in 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 that section too. So do you uh, do you fish at all, or is that something that's uh, that's that's you went to others to to do some research on? Um, you know, I grew up with a little. Once again, it was spread out, so I never I never got to be like this proficient proficient in any one of the categories. It was, I had enough of a film familiarization to increase, you know, my my research capability, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, but also what I f- always find interesting is like, you know, being in the Navy and especially in the SEAL teams, you know, when it comes to knots, for example, right. I mean, you can do all those fancy intricate ones, you know, when you're trying to put your line to the hook. Um, but then there's also some just real easy ones that you're probably just going to default to, and contrasting something as simple as that, I felt like needed to be done because I hadn't really seen it anywhere else, you know, in the stuff that I'd looked at. So, um, and once again, that goes back to the illustrations where I feel like my job since I've been out of the Navy is let's take complex stuff and make it easy for people to digest. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think, uh, I think that's important, you know, knots you can, like you said, you can get, get into dozens and dozens of fancy knots and there's, there's a, a very <laughs> small set that you really need. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So you have quotes throughout your book, uh, from Henry David Thoreau. And so is that, it was that something that publisher liked to do, or is that something, do you have a, uh, do you have a passion for Thoreau's writing? Well, Thoreau and Emerson both were, you know, kind of ahead of their time. If you just look at the quotes standalone, and I found it fascinating that most of what they were saying, or at least the ones that myself and my editor pulled out, is actually come to fruition. You know, there's one that's basically like, hey, if you forget to use how use your hands, then you kind of forget to do anything. Um, and that's really what's happened these days. I mean, our hands are used to, you know, you know, touch screens now. They're not even really doing what they used to do. And um, so, yeah, I, I, some of that was sprinkled in uh, between me and my editor both. But you had to have if you're talking about self-reliance and you have to have Emerson, you know, he wrote the book on it. Literally. Right. <laughs> right, right, Absolutely. So what do you think? You know, you talk about. um us not using our hands anymore, um, which I think is is really interesting. Yeah, not even we're not even punching keys, right? We're just sliding it across glass. Yeah, uh, less and less. So nothing tactile, and uh, that's that. That really the, the implications of that I think will, will be fascinating, and I'm sure there's probably research being done on it right now, but. Um, what do you think are, are the benefits of 
of let's say that 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 physical that physical activity and and maybe even maybe even hardship. Let me ask you that. Sort of stepping back for a moment, um, you know, you going through buds training, etc. Um, did you were you ever in in combat uh, situations abroad? Yeah, of course. I was. Yeah, I had that perfect timing in my career where I got to experience a little bit of everything for sure. Okay. Um, yeah, and I agree. Like, I think hardship. Um, you certainly, it's a, it's a valuable set of lessons learned that I think everyone should experience in some form or fashion. You know, I wouldn't wish some of it on anyone, but I feel like each person has their own version of that if they've lived long enough. And I think most would agree that that's where you get a majority of your life lessons, uh, mental pivots, you know, like emotional pivot points, Um, and I, and I, and I think you kind of, I used to, I used to, to this day, I I preach like, Hey, you got to go do something that tests your will at least once a year, because it kind of makes you appreciate all of the, the things that are pretty damn easy these days. You know, we just, we tend (laughs) to take, we tend to take it all for granted, you know, um, you know, just a deployment, just a simple deployment without combat. You know, you come back to the States and like you walk into a Home Depot and you're like, holy shit, everything in one spot, everything you need. You know, it's like you can't find that, you know, if you're hanging out in Djibouti, Africa and you go to the supermarché, you know, you'll be lucky if you find a screwdriver when you need it, you know. And so we uh, we definitely have everything literally at our fingertips here and we just don't know it. So. Hardship is certainly uh, the path to appreciation. It's interesting because I think, you know, I think societally in, in, in the last couple generations or the last few decades, uh, there's been this misguided idea that, that the easier we can make life for our kids, for ourselves, et cetera, the, the better off we are. And uh, I, I just I, I flagged this on on page one sixty seven of your book. This is in the uh, I think this is in the hunter section. Uh, again, the uh, to quote Henry David Thoreau, it's, it says most of the luxuries and many of the so called comforts of life are not only indispensable but positive hindrances <laughs> to the elevation of mankind. Well, I think that that says serious. it right. Yeah. That's shit written like, what, a hundred years ago? I mean, it's like these guys were so far ahead. It's kind of Einstein-like, you know, like they, uh, they're they nailing it. Even today, they're nailing it. But, I, but you know, I, I'm, I'm the first one to tell you, like the subtitle is Modern Guide to Self-Reliance. Modern meaning all of this modern technology, you can, you should, you should leverage it to be more self-reliant, right? So, um I mean, all the advances that we made are is pretty incredible and awesome, right? I mean, you can't knock it, but it's uh, but it's it's when you the number of people that have advanced us as a globe is very few. Most of us are just following along and have no idea what the hell we're doing. <laughs> <laughs> no, it is so true. What uh, out out of all the chapters? So you got you know you're talking about building, you're talking about power grid, farming, butchering, 
hunting, homemaker. That that's the that was the interesting one. So you're talking about like sewing, mending, grooming. Again, some of those basic household tasks that somebody used to to do, right? And today's today we just throw it away, right? Or we head somewhere to, and somebody will do it for us. Right. Um, so yeah, my fate. You're asking my favorite kind yeah, of yeah. What's your What's your favorite section? Like as you were writing this, like as you're going through it, you've got some familiar, it was more familiarity with certain subjects yeah. than others. Um, as you're going through it and you also love to learn. So like, yeah. as you, as you got on the back end of this thing, which, which area were you like, man, I, I really am fascinated with this and, and need to do more learning. Uh, you know, I be your own power grid was kind of cool. I got to say, like, I think there's this underappreciation for geothermal, you know, green being the new like orange or whatever the hell the second <laughs> green is the new whatever. Um, geothermal doesn't get talked about. And I kind of figured out why, because big industry can't capitalize off of it. Because if you just take go to Home Depot, buy a shovel, right? <laughs> and then buy, um, you know, 200, you know, probably two to 300 feet of PVC pipe with a bunch of elbow joints, T joints, right? And then you cut that all up and and create a grid, right? So you've got, but it's all connected, one big airway, yeah. And then you dig a hole six feet or deeper in the ground, okay? Um, And you place that grid down in there and then bury it. And you've got an intake coming out on one end and an out uh, output on the other. Um, and you can buy these little, once again, modern, right? You can buy two solar fans that are the diameter of the PVC pipe that are solar powered. Um, and at one end, you're going to suck ambient air in to your grid that's buried down at six feet or more. And then you're going to have your output connected to, let's say, your house or a room in your house. And what people don't know, and that I was, you know, I think I'd heard it maybe once, is that six feet and below, no matter where you are on this planet, is 55 degrees Fahrenheit, right? Yeah. So you can be in Arizona in the middle of the summer and it'd be 120 degrees out and suck in 120 degree air through your intake, let it flow through that grid you created six feet deep, and then come out through your output into your home or into whatever. And now you're probably going to take it from 120, probably down to 65 or 70 degrees for the cost of PVC pipe and two solar fans. I mean, so when I started digging into that kind of stuff, I was like, man, that is pretty cool. And, you know, if I would have, you know, had the opportunity to get ahead on, I bought a house, but if I had built the house, I would have put in an entire geothermal system on, you know, before you build the house. So, and put it as deep as possible. So it's nice and cold, you know? Yeah. No, I, I remember years ago when I, when I first learned about geothermal, I'm like, that concept of like, you just said that 55 degree temp, I was like, it just sort of blew your mind. You know, I was like, wow, I, I didn't realize in, in cool or, or heat and, and, uh, yeah. <laughs> like, you know what? It's like, no one's, you don't really, you see kits. That's about as much of the capitalization. But when you talk about big industry, 
you know, they're aiming at solar, they're aiming at windmills, right. you know, and because those things you can build and, you know, you know, you can cost a fortune for that stuff. But yeah. geothermal, eh, well, that, yeah. that won't generate enough money. So let's yeah. not push it. <laughs> you got to have some acreage too. But uh, yeah, did you, uh, did you by any chance check, get a chance when you were researching that to, to talk with somebody who had done it in their, you know, let's say suburban or exurban uh, um, yard? Yeah, one family um, basically kept their uh, their greenhouse climate controlled with um, geo... Well, one thing I learned, redundancy, right? So in their, just in their greenhouse, they had geothermal to try and keep it climate controlled all year round at roughly that 70 degree kind of point. But they also um, had solar batteries, which was another, you know, I'm like, what a great idea. You take a barrel, you paint it black, you fill it with water. Um, you put it at the, you know, let's say at the southernmost window, if you will, that gets light all day long. You know, and during the day, that barrel of water just heats up and stays warm um, through the night. And once again, it, it's, you know, you, you put all of these different systems in place before you know it, you're, you're keeping your climates exactly where you want them and you don't have an electric bill. So I thought, I mean, it's super cool. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's, that is cool. And a lot of those, pa- like you say, a lot of those more, more passive strategies, you know, passive solar, things like that. It's just happening. We're just not capturing it. Right. Yeah. I mean, you can, you, you don't even need a barrel. You can just take a huge boulder, right? Rocks retain heat, you know, and if you can m- manipulate it and move it into the right position, you know, which the, the key thing is just, you know, the southernmost part of your home, the southernmost part of your shed, whatever that is. So the sun is hitting it all day long and then, yeah, you're capturing free energy, free heat, whatever. Yeah. So what's your next adventure you got planned? Uh, I'm already working on another 100 Deadly Skills. You know, whether you know or not, it's the first book series that I kind of started. And um, and it's giving you skills that allow you to survive in crisis seconds, minutes, hours, and days. Rugged Life was kind of the extended side of that. Like, well, wait a minute. Let's talk about how to thrive and set up these these longevity systems. It kind of goes hand in hand you know, and do these things before there's a crisis. Right. But then you got to also know the stuff that's in hundred daily skills, because that's going to, that could potentially save your life or allow you just to elude, you know, uh, all those kind of bad deal situations altogether. Um, but so yeah, I'm working on another hundred daily skills and, uh, and then setting up an online subscription so people can come and see, see all the skills in action um, and that'll be hopefully rolling out here pretty soon. Very cool. Do you find, do you find, um, people having issues with deadly death kill <laughs> <laughs> those, yeah. those concepts again, again, when, uh, when we look at society these days, I think we tend to shy away from that. Oh yeah. And, and, and what's your, th- what do you, what do you hear from people when, when you talk about that? Well, it probably wasn't the best branding idea. <laughs> I'll admit that. But my thought process is like, these are skills that you need to know if you find yourself in a deadly situation, right? So 
100 deadly skills. So it's, uh, you know, it's a little bit of a play on words and a reverse definition of then most people just think, oh, it's skills that teach me how to be deadly. No, it actually it's skills that get yourself out of deadly issue, deadly situations. And, um, you know, so I've had to explain that a couple of times. But, yeah, it, it I've run into issues like my books have been optioned, you know, several times and um, a couple of times by like Discovery Channel, for example, and it. It got funded, green light, all the way up, you know, and it was it was like, okay, here we go. And then the Vegas shooting happened. And basically they scrapped it because it had the word deadly in the title. And I was like, you know, you don't actually have to call it 100 Deadly Skills. You could you could call it just 100 Great Skills to Know TV show. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Yeah, no, definitely uh, sensitivities with it. I think I think it's one of those things where you know I I look at the the, the deadly piece as a as a as a hunter as somebody in the outdoors of even that I think yeah people people can can get uncomfortable with it and I think it's something where it's just the reality life is death and we should talk about it and and uh, and have uh, have more discussion I think would be would be good so yeah. Yeah, I agree with you. But yeah, they, they, uh, yeah, that just that title alone is probably, you know, <laughs> cut, cut my visibility in half, I'd say. <laughs> I, 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 I hear you. Yeah. Well, how do people, uh, find the rugged life? Uh, this great book, the modern guide to self-reliance. How, how do they, uh, how do they get this in their hands? Yeah, easy. It's everywhere books are sold. It's even in most airport bookstores right now. Um, but yeah, anywhere people buy their books, obviously Amazon. Um, but if you get lost in all that, all my books are at clintemerson.com. Clintemerson.com. Great. And what's your uh, what's your social media profile? A hundred right deadly, a hundred deadly skills for everything. Okay, gotcha. <laughs> yeah. okay. And, and Instagram being my primary. But yeah, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. Well, I think it's I think it's a great book, uh, 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 you know, on how to thrive, like you said, and uh, and and a good introduction for a lot of important topics for people to get their hands working again, right? That's right. It's uh, yeah, anything that's uh, convenient is also complacent, right? Like we kind of hit, and anything that's hard to do is always going to be satisfying. So just pick the hard way sometimes. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, Clint, thanks so much for uh, for coming on the podcast. Yeah, thank you for having me, man. It's good hanging out with you. Thanks for listening to the Modern Carnivore Podcast. You can continue the journey by going to modcarn.com. 